You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 42, the very first book. We're getting very close uh, to the end of our series. We've been, we started Genesis all the way back in, I believe it was April of last year, April or May, and we are just now eight chapters away from the finish line, from chapter 50. We've got, we'll have five more weeks uh, in Genesis. Next week um, is really, I'm really looking forward to, uh, we've got Tim Patrick from the Bible College of South Australia here to, to, to bring us the word on Genesis chapter 43. And uh, so you won't want to miss that. It's an opportunity you're going to have to ask any questions you want about what God's doing up at uh, the college. We've got several students uh, who attend here, part of our City Light South family. And so that we're yeah, just looking forward to uh, having Tim uh, bless us with the word next week. All right. Genesis chapter 42. We're looking at just one chapter today after uh, an epic two chapters last week. Um, this is we're halfway through the last section of Genesis. Uh, which, and the last section of Genesis from chapters 37 to 50 is really about just two things. It's about two things. Um, one, it's a picture of Joseph, who's the hero, the main character of the story, um, who uh, he, as a young man was rejected by his brothers and then sold into slavery in Egypt. And then because of God's uh, blessed blessing of him, because of God's providence, he was then elevated to a position of leadership and prominence everywhere he went, first in Potiphar's house, then in prison, and now, as we saw last week, in Pharaoh's own palace. And it's not just for the good of Joseph, it's not just going to be for the good of Joseph's family, but it's ultimately going to be for the good of the whole world. But this is also a story, not just about um, Joseph and the changes and the things that he goes through, but it's also a story of all of God's people as a whole. So this week, we're going to see when Joseph's family, his brothers, his father, their wives and kids, make the pilgrimage, uh, start to make the pilgrimage down to Egypt. And, And when they go, by the end of Genesis, when they're all down there, there's about 70 of them, it says. 70 people, 70 people that could fit in, probably fit in your backyard. Um, and, and when they come out hundreds of years later down the track, they're going to be a nation. They're going to be a, a big nation of thousands and thousands of people. And so think of them going down into Egypt almost like they're going into, they're the, the caterpillar that goes into the cocoon. And when they come out, they're going to be completely changed, completely transformed. Change, we're going to see this because if you stick with that image of the cocoon, change happens for God's people and for us as individuals. It often happens in secret and it often happens very slowly. And that's what we're going to see with with Joseph's life. We're going to see this in Joseph's family today. The change that God wants to accomplish in you and in his people often happens in secret. It often happens really slowly. We, we live in a world that kind of pushes against this. We live in a world of technology where everything has to be publicized. Everything has to be broadcast out, you know, every development, every event that takes place. If it's not on Instagram, then it didn't happen. <laughs> and yet the, cha- the way God works in us is so counter to that. And the other thing is, you know, the change we expect to happen really quickly. We want everything to be microwaved, everything overnight. 
Um, I've said this a bunch of times before, but I love watching those home renovation shows on TV. And one of the great things about watching home renovation shows on TV is that it's all done in 30 minutes. It goes from like plans, the blueprints, to pristine, magazine-worthy in 30 minutes. It's amazing. If you've ever lived through an actual renovation, which we're doing a bit of backyard renovation at the moment, it does not finish in 30 minutes. It takes weeks, and it's messy, and it's frustrating, and it's disruptive. And yet, we want it to be so quick because we're used, we're being conditioned by uh, television, by media, to think things are gonna happen quickly. But the best things in life, the best things in life often take years, if not a lifetime. And the change that God is doing in you often happens in secret, and it often happens slowly. So the last section of this, um, of Genesis, we're, we're working towards the climax of the story. We're not quite there uh, this week, but it's all about change. We've seen Joseph change from being a helpless teenager stuck in a pit uh, to now he is the, the vice regent, the 2IC of an entire country. He goes from the pit to the palace. And the rest of the book is going to show us why God put him in that position. He's going to show us not not, not just the change in Joseph, but he's now he's going to start to show us the change in Joseph's family. And how that change of Joseph's family, the, 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 you know, the brothers who were violent, the brothers who were impulsive, the brothers who sold him out into slavery, how God is going to bring them to a place of humility and repentance and real change. And it's going to show us what it's, how he works in us, how God uses circumstances, how he uses suffering, how he uses all sorts of things to change us. To change not just our behavior, but to change our hearts. So as we dive into the story of Genesis 42 today, I want you to keep an eye out for the changes that are starting to happen in Joseph's brothers in particular. I want you to look at some of the friction points there that are resisting that change. And I think you might recognize some of those same things that go on in our own hearts. You'll see what God's up to. You'll start to recognize not only how God worked back then, but how he works in us now. How he changes us in secret. How he changes us slowly. Now, I'm going to read the story. I'm going to make some comments as we go. And at the end, I'm going to take a bit of time to connect this story to our own journeys of change. That daily exercise of trusting God again um, that we have been called to as followers of Jesus. So would you pray with me? Uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into the chapter. Lord, thank you that even right now, us being here and, and attending to your word, listening to it together, is a part of that long, slow process of change that you have, that you desire for us, that you are working in us, Lord. And so I pray that your words this morning would go out from my mouth, would go out from your word, and they would accomplish what you have intended for them to accomplish that we might be changed, that you might be glorified, that we might have joy. Um, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 42. Before I start reading this chapter, I want to just give you a quick recap. Last week, we looked at Pharaoh's uh, dreams that enabled, that God uh, enabled Joseph to interpret. 
And as because the dreams were, he interpreted them correctly, um, he had predicted seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine, and then he advised famine how, or advised Pharaoh how to get through the famine by storing up extra during the abundant years and then having it for the famine years. Um, and Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph's wisdom that he not, didn't just give him a pat on the back, he actually elevated him to the second highest position in the whole country, putting him in charge of the grain supply. Um, and so it says at the very end of chapter 41 that people from every land, all the surrounding countries, when the famine hit, they came to Egypt to buy grain. They came to Joseph, specifically, who was in charge of the selling of the grain. So we see this now at the beginning of chapter 42, that Jacob, who's back in Canaan, one of the neighboring countries, is going to send his kids uh, on a mission to buy grain in Egypt. So let's pick up now in chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on. I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we'll live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. All right, what's going on here? What's going on here? Jacob sends 10 of his 11 sons that are, he thinks are still alive on this mission to save their lives because the pantry is empty. Not because all of these guys are a bunch of hungry teenagers, but there's literally no food anywhere. Supermarkets are empty. There's no food. Aisle after aisle of bare shelves. I don't know if you remember back in 2020 what it was like to walk into the supermarket and see empty shelves. It was, it was a bit confronting. Like I, didn't, like, I didn't like going to the supermarket back in those days because you would go in hoping that there would be flour or pasta or toilet paper, the holy grail of that year, and, and just for, for weeks, months, it wasn't there. And then, you know, I can remember, I think it was about June or July one time, going up to Costco, making the, and, and, and it was right as things were starting to come, come right again, and going in one entire wall of that warehouse, the entire wall was stacked floor to ceiling with toilet paper, huge packs of toilet paper, and I thought, wow, the world is right again. You know, when you walk into a store and there's like empty shelves, there's some, you feel the sense of unsettled, like, is this, is it ever going to get better? Is it going to get worse? And we start, and we haven't had to think like that as people, but we've, that, who haven't lived through an actual famine. But it's only been fairly recently in human history where this kind of thing is rare. This used to happen a lot because we're so dependent. When we didn't have electricity, we didn't have the supply chains that we have now, people were so dependent on the weather. You have one bad year, especially if, or two bad years in a row of drought, and people are in a world of hurt. And that's exactly what was going on here. Nothing on the shelves. Um, they're probably one or two years into the famine. Um, Joseph's been in Egypt by this point over 20 years. And lots has changed, especially for Joseph. But not so much for Jacob and his brothers. They're still struggling. They're still a pretty dysfunctional family at this point. We see this coming through. Um, these are the people that God promised to Abraham all those years ago would become a mighty nation. They would carry the promise. They would carry the blessing, not only for themselves, but for the whole world. And yet we look at what they're doing, how they're talking to each other, how they're kind of fighting with each other here and grumpy and thinking, man, 
This does not look like a blessed family. This looks like my family. It looks, they look pretty messed up. So he, he, he sends 10 of the 11 uh, down to Egypt to buy grain. But he refuses to send his youngest son, Benjamin. Why? If you remember, um, Jacob had two wives and then two servants that he also took as wives. And his favorite wife, if you remember, was Rachel. And Rachel had two boys. So two of the 12 uh, he had with Rachel. And they were Joseph, who he thinks is dead, and Benjamin. So Benjamin is now the new favorite after Joseph is gone. And so he protects him. Something's going to happen. I don't want anything to happen to Benjamin. He's still playing favorites. And this is very unhealthy. Um, obviously probably contributes to some of the the behavior and attitudes we see in the other boys. He sends them along. They're expendable. They can go and they can die. I don't really care, but Benjamin, I'm going to keep him back. Um, it just keeps happening. After Generation after generation, we see Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob's parents, played favorites with the boys. Um, Jacob play, plays favorites with his sons. All right, verse 5. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain. But the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all his people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, 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 my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food, they said. We're, we're all sons of one man. We're honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we are your servants. We're we were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and the one is no longer living. And then Joseph said to them, I have spoken. You are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they're true. If they're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. All right, a couple things to see here. First, verse 6, we see the fulfillment of a dream. Remember that back in chapter 37, the two dreams that Joseph had? What did he say? What were the dreams? It was the seven, or the, sorry, the, um, the grain, the 11 sheaves of grain bowing down uh, to his sheaf of grain. And then the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down to him. And Jacob at that point says, what are you, are you crazy? You think we're all going to bow down to you? And here we see a partial fulfillment. Ten of the brothers are bowing before Joseph. Of course, they don't know it's Joseph, but they're bowing. God is accomplishing his purpose. He's bringing this dream uh, to reality. Now, um, in verse 9, uh, we, it says that Joseph remembered the dreams. He, he saw this as in a fulfillment of what God told him, you know, 20 years ago. And so what he's thinking in his mind is, okay, in the dream, dad was there, Benjamin was there, but right now they're not here. So in his mind, he's, he's thinking, how do I get them here? How do I get them here? And so you understand the way that what he's doing when he accuses them of being spies 
He's trying to get information from them to find out, is dad still alive? Is Benjamin still alive? And of course they provide it to him and, and confirm that they are in fact still alive. And so now he starts thinking, how am I gonna get them here? How am I gonna get them here? Um, he's, he's trying to test them to see not just that they're, not if they're spies, he doesn't really think they're spies, he knows who they are. He's trying to test their hearts to see if they have changed. If they're still the same people, selfish, evil people who threw him in the pit all those years ago. And so he devises this strategy. Um, you might think, and some people do, think when he speaks harshly, it says, to his brothers, that he's really just out for revenge. He's trying to pay back this is karma for what they did uh, all those years ago. But he's not actually doing that. Because if he wanted to have them killed, he had all the power to do it. He could have, you know, had them killed right then and there. But he's, he's doing this because he wants to see their hearts. That he puts them under this test, and it's super hard. Um, he puts them in prison for three days, um, so that, and then says that one of them he's gonna send back uh, to get the other brother, to get Benjamin. Um, there's a bit of dramatic tension going on here. All right, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you're honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die and they consented to this. Okay. On the third day, on the third, it's somehow in the Bible, on the third day, it, you know, God always shows up. There's always a little bit of new life, a little bit of resurrection that happens on the third day, and that's what's happening here. So Joseph changes his strategy a little bit here. First, he said he was going to send one guy back by himself to make the journey, which was a dangerous trip. Now he kind of relents and he says, all right, nine of you can go back, and one of you has to stay, stay behind. And he says, why, is he, why does he do this? He says, I fear God. I fear God, which is interesting, coming from the guy they think is an Egyptian, pagan, ruler, saying to them, the family of God, the people of God, I, not you, I fear God. It's a theme all through Genesis. Sometimes the, the pagans, the outsiders, people like Tamar and Hagar, often fear God and are more godly than the insiders. All right, I fear God. He lowers the stakes for them and says that one of them uh, can stay behind and the rest of them co can go back. Joseph is trying to see if they're really, if they've really changed, if they're really honest. Are they going to come back or are they going to leave Simeon in the pit the way that they left Joseph in the pit all those years before? Verse 21. And then they said to each other, obviously, you're being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we wouldn't listen. This is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They didn't realize that Joseph understood them. Since there was an interpreter between them, he turned away from them and wept. When he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and had him bound before their eyes Joseph then gave orders for, to fill their containers with grain, returning each man's silver to his sack, and give them provisions for their journey. The order was carried out. They loaded the grain on their donkeys and left there. This scene is one of the most dramatic and emotional in the entire chapter, if not in all of Genesis. 
The brothers are speaking in their Hebrew language, and Joseph had been speaking in the Egyptian language through an interpreter. They have no idea that he's Joseph. They have no idea that he can understand them. What are they saying? What are they saying? Well, they're giving evidence that they haven't changed very much, have they? They are plotting. They're, they're discussing among themselves, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And remember, Joseph fears God. These guys, they don't mention God. They think that the universe is punishing them. They think this is karma coming back to them. We did that awful thing to our brother 20 years ago, and now here it's coming around to get us. And Reuben, once again, is not particularly helpful. He's, you know, trying to remind everybody that he, ah, well, this, don't blame me for this. Don't blame me. I told you not to do this. I told you. Um, and now we're in a world of trouble because of you. You see the blame shifting going on? Fast forward 20 years. Joseph is now in the presence of his brothers. And the, and the emotions that they talk about, we don't get that back in 37. It doesn't, we didn't get any details that when Joseph was in the pit, that he was in distress, that he begged, he pleaded for his life. The narrator doesn't tell us that there. But the brothers, through the mouth of the brothers, they say that. They knew. They, they listened to their brother plead and beg for his life. And they did nothing. They didn't show mercy then. And yet, here Joseph is emotional. And I, guys, I, I just have to pause here and say, this is, a, this is a picture of how God relates to us. And I want you to see this. God, see, God knows who you are. God knows who we are. Whether we see him or acknowledge him or not. He, he, he sees us. He sees us in our good moments, and he sees us in our scheming, in our ignorance, house down, crashing down on their heads. How can I humiliate them? No, that's not what he does. Joseph is sitting there plotting on how to show mercy. He's weeping. He's weeping over their ignorance, over their wickedness, over their helplessness. He has compassion. This is the heart of the Father that you're seeing right here. This is how he is, he, when he looks on us in our ignorance and our sin, this is how he responds to us. He, he, he plots and schemes on how to be merciful. He weeps over us the way Joseph wept over his brothers. These are not tears of anger or despair. These are tears of compassion. And you've got to, and you know that by his actions. Because this is where he says, okay, I'm not going to let just one of you go back and be in danger. I'm going to keep one of you here. I'm going to even give you provisions for the trip. He gives them grains to go back and relieve. I can't bear to think of my father and my youngest brother starving back home here. He like They have no idea. But he fills their sacks with grains and he gives them their money back. They have no idea why. They don't even find out until they're like already on the journey. And he has just such compassion for them. You know, this is what grace looks like, guys. This is how God is oriented toward us. If ever you think, man, I've sinned it's, and I've done it. I have done the worst thing that I could possibly do. God's patience with me is finished. Think about Joseph here. Joseph is a human, and if Joseph can be this gracious and merciful and compassionate to his brothers who basically left him for dead, how much more is our God? 
gracious and merciful and compassionate and patient and slow to anger with us. All right, verse 22. At the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw there his silver at the top of the bag, and he said to his brothers, my silver's been returned, it's here in my bag. Their hearts sank, trembling. They turned to one another and said, what has God done to us? See, sometimes we don't recognize grace that comes. We think it's, I mean, they think it's a trap. They still are thinking that the universe for, is going to pay us back. Now, they, this is the first time they mention God here. He's the, he, God's coming to get us. What has God done to us? They just can't imagine a world in which the prime minister of Egypt has provided them all of this grain to feed their families and relieve their hunger so they might not die for free. And, and we don't, like, free grace is such a foreign concept to us, even those of us who've grown up in the church. Even those of us who've grown up Christians, even those of us in ministry, we experience free grace and forgiveness and mercy. And we're like, what is this? This can't be real. This is too good to be true. But it is. It is true. We so often think, you know, that one day God is going to pay us back for the things that nobody knows about. He's going to punish us for our secret sins. He's... He's like a predator just waiting for the right minute to pounce. But that's not how God acts here. He is not eager to judge. He's not quick to condemn. He's eager to show kindness. And one of the ways that God shows kindness to us is one of the ways that we, we have a hard time understanding, and that is putting us in situations where we feel quite helpless so that we are forced to trust or forced to depend on him. Verse 29. When they reached their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. The man who is the Lord of the country spoke harshly to us and accused us of spying on the country. But we told him we're honest and not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of the same father. One is no longer living, and the youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man who is the lord of the country said to us, This is how I will know if you are honest. Leave one brother with me. Take food to relieve the hunger of your households, and go. Bring back your youngest brother to me, and I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will then give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the country. As they began emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack, not just one, but each man's sack, was his bag of silver. When they and their father saw their bags of silver, they were afraid. And their father Jacob said to them, It's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. And Reuben said to his father, You can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob answered, My son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. That's the end of the chapter. It doesn't end on a real high note. Um, the brothers come back to the father in Egypt, and they start telling him what happened. How the so-called Lord of Egypt was mean to them. How they reveal the existence of Benjamin. Whoops. And uh, then Simeon, why he was not with them, why he was left behind. And then in verse 35, um, not just one of the brothers, but then all of them discover that their money had been returned. And unlike Joseph, who fears God, 
Jacob and the boys are afraid because they're afraid of being found out. They think that they're sin. They think that this is, uh, this is some sort of trap. It's finally going to come back on us. We're going to be charged as thieves. We're going to be punished, maybe even killed. And in the chapter then closes with Jacob feeling massively sorry for himself. I mean, this is a pretty epic whinge that he has here. I mean, and it's, I, I feel a little bit mean calling it a whinge because I mean, he really is like, he's, he, he's grieving. It's, it's, there's genuine grief here. So I'm not, I want to acknowledge that, but, but he makes the whole thing about himself, doesn't he? He looks at nine of his sons standing in front of him, and he calls himself. He says, if you take Benjamin, I'm going to be childless. Man, imagine if you were in the position of one of those nine, thinking, man, what are we? Aren't we your kids as well? No. He doesn't say that because he's just he's feeling sorry for himself. You know, everything, everything happens to me, is what he says in verse 36. You ever said that? I have. Something goes wrong. Something goes wrong at work or at home, and you know your car breaks down and flat tire or something. Why me? What oh, this always happens to me? It's what it's what we think when you know we 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 get we are blind to God's kindness. And we start you know catastrophizing, thinking that either God or someone is out to get us. All about me. And then Reuben again speaks up. And he's he's kind of like the Peter of the Old Testament. Like every time he talks, he's kind of like, dude, what are you what are you saying? Just shh. It's what you kind of feel like saying. And he says, Okay, man, if we go and we, you know, if if uh, if Benjamin dies, you can kill two of my kids. What? And Jacob's going, How is that like how is that a, a like a fair deal? You, you, you know, one kid, my kid dies and you want to kill more? Like, what? Why don't you just be quiet? Um, clearly, that's not what Jacob wants. He can't imagine a world where he loses the only other son of his favorite wife. He doesn't see the hand of God in any of it. He's just under the crushing burden, the weight of sin or of despair and grief. And that's how it ends. That's how this chapter ends. Jacob's now lost another son, potential to lose yet another one, his, 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 his new favorite. The grain that they got from Egypt is good. It's not gonna last forever. They're gonna have to go back sometime. They can't, I mean, even if they were willing to, you know, leave Simeon there forever, um, they've gotta go back for food. They can't see what God's doing. And you know, that's so often how we find ourselves like in the middle of a crisis. We don't see what God is doing. We just see the grief. And it's only over time, slowly, that God opens our eyes. You know that passage in James? James writes this, he says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. See, most of the time, we're like Jacob. You know, the trouble, the hardship comes, whether it's a small thing like a flat tire or a big thing like a, a terminal diagnosis, and we think that's it. That's it, God's kindness is gone, everything fade to black, game over. 
what if you and I, if we came to believe in those situations that this isn't death, this is discipline. This isn't catastrophe. This is God's kindness to us. What if the person that God wants you to become is only possible, that that outcome is only possible by enduring some hardship? The Bible is really clear that suffering, difficulty, affliction produces fruit in us. Over and over again, we see this, not only in just said directly, but we see it in the lives of people, real people. It's not just the Christian way of saying, you know, no pain, no gain. It's, but it is saying that fruit, we see this even in nature, that fruit comes. That, it, you know, Jesus said it. He said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it's only a seed. It's only a seed. And it's not useful for anything. But if it falls to the ground, it dies, it cracks open in the ground, it produces beautiful fruit. I want to share three takeaways from the story of Genesis 42. Number one, God's compassion and God's discipline work together for our growth. Number two, our growth is not automatic. It takes active cooperation on our part. And number three, our growth is evidenced by both words and action. So let me start with number one. God's compassion and discipline work together for our growth. The brothers in the story, they think about Joseph the way we often think about God in the middle of hardship. I've said this already. They don't recognize, we don't recognize what God's like. We don't recognize his kindness when it comes. Later on, when Joseph finally does reveal himself, and we'll see this in future weeks, they think he is just like them. They think, oh man, dad's, when, once dad dies, now, he's, now we're in for it. He's gonna get it. He's just been holding out. They, they, it takes a lifetime for them to realize that grace is real, that God's compassion and his discipline work together for our growth, for our good. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing when he says, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons and daughters. Joseph is not spiteful in what he's doing. He's weeping at the thought of being reconciled to his brothers after all these years. The only thing he doesn't do, which is the one thing that God doesn't do for us in these kinds of situations, is he does not let his brothers write the script. He, he keeps control of the situation. And God is in control of our circumstances as well. He doesn't hand over control, complete control to us. And we wrestle with that, we struggle with that. It's hard not to be in control. And yet we have to, by faith, believe that God is actively, eagerly kind to us in every situation. He doesn't withhold anything. He doesn't even withhold his own son. He gave him freely for us all. How will he not give us all the things that we need? God's compassion and his discipline work together for our growth. Second thing, and this is important, our growth is never automatic. We see this in the chapter. We need to actively cooperate with, and when I was younger in my faith, I really liked that phrase, let go and let God. You may have heard it before. And, and there's some good things if we're talking about like let go of worry, let go of doubt, okay, sure. But it can never mean to let go of effort. The gospel 
this is not original to me. I can't. I don't know who said this originally, but I'm just going to say it to you. Um, the gospel is is not opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to earning. You cannot earn favor with God. You cannot earn forgiveness. You can't earn salvation. But the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to working toward godliness, towards holiness, toward renouncing sin and practicing godliness. And so it's not automatic. Philippians 2, this comes out. He says, God is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. But in the verse just before that, what does it say? It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We work, God works for our growth. It's not automatic. The more you want what is good and right, the more you begin to do what is right. And the gospel is what changes what you want. What does it have to do with Genesis 42? Well, let's spare a thought for Jacob here. He has not had an easy life. And in this chapter, he's an old man. And yet, what is he like? As an old man, he's bitter. He's still playing favorites with his kids. He has not learned from many of his mistakes. He can only see the way all the bad stuff is coming for him. So we can't be fooled into thinking because God's grace is free that we don't have to do anything. We, we have to take active steps to discipline ourselves, to, to put our, 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 our bodies and our desires in, in, in check, to renounce sin. Because we don't do that and we end up like Jacob. We end up, you know, as essentially the, one of the people of God and yet not acting like God in any way, shape, or form. You know, one of the things we can pray in seasons of hardship is, God, would you use this to produce something new in me? As we walk the path of suffering, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Father, would you take this away from me, but not, not my will, but yours be done. Do through this thing. Do in me what you can only accomplish right now in this season. Our growth is never automatic. It takes active cooperation. The last thing I want to point out, our growth is evidenced by both words and actions. The word honest, the word honest shows up in Genesis 42 five times. Verse 10, the brothers plead with Joseph, we're honest men, we're not spies. And Joseph devises this test to prove whether they or not they are actually honest or just saying it to save their own skin. And so far, none of these guys have proven honest. None of these guys have proven trustworthy. In Judah's case, his pagan daughter-in-law was more honest and had more integrity than him. Simeon and Levi, they killed a whole town in order to get revenge. In their case, um, you know, their words, if we can't just take them at their word. We need to see evidence. We need to see action of real change, of real repentance. John says this, 1 John 3, 18, little children, let's not love in word and speech, but in action and in truth. Repentance requires real action. When it comes to putting the gospel on display, actions do speak louder than words. The kind of actions the world needs to see are, are those that only become visible when we're in the middle of hardship. Only when we're in the middle of hardship do we stay generous or do we hold on to our stuff because life's hard? Do we stay kind? Or do we start throwing other people under the bus to save ourselves? Do we apologize when we're criticized or confronted? Or do we just get defensive and shift blame? 
Do we stand firm in the faith? Or do we talk one way when we're with our Christian friends and another way when we're with our non-Christian friends? Just to keep our options open. The pathway ahead of these brothers is not going to be an easy pathway or pain and hardship. See, the road to life, the road to joy, the road to change, the road to growth, there is no other way to change. There is no other way to grow than to walk the way of the cross, the way of Christ. Christ, who, like Joseph, weeps over his lost kids. The Father who disciplines us for our joy, for our growth. The Spirit who empowers us to live changed, to live more like Jesus every single day. No matter how godly you might feel right now, here one thing is true. God is more committed to your change. He's more committed to your growth than you are, than we are. And how do we know that? Because he steeped his own life on it. He gave his own life for it. There is not one drop of blood, of Jesus' blood, that will ever, ever be wasted on you. Lord, we thank you that you are committed to our, to our change, to our joy, so much more committed than we are, more committed than we can be. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to see you as a God, not one hiding in the bushes, waiting to pay us back for the wrongs that we have done. But may we see you as a father who sent your own son to receive the punishment that we deserved. That we might receive nothing but kindness and grace, even the kindness that comes in the form of discipline. May we receive that discipline so, so loved. Lord, when we come to the table this morning, help us to believe the gospel again, the gospel of grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.